This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Law School of America General Welfare Clause To pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Of all the limitations upon the power to tax and spend, the General Welfare Clause appears to have achieved notoriety as one of the most contentious. The dispute over the clause arises from two distinct disagreements. The first concerns whether the General Welfare Clause grants an independent spending power or is a restriction upon the taxing power. The second disagreement pertains to what exactly is meant by the phrase general welfare. The two primary authors of the Federalist Papers set forth two separate, conflicting interpretations. James Madison advocated the ratification of the Constitution in the Federalist and at the Virginia Ratifying Convention upon a narrow construction of the clause, asserting that spending must be at least tangentially tied to one of the other specifically enumerated powers, such as regulating interstate or foreign commerce, or providing for the military, as the General Welfare Clause is not a specific grant of power, but a statement of purpose qualifying the power to tax. Alexander Hamilton, only after the Constitution had been ratified, argued for a broad interpretation which viewed spending as an enumerated power Congress could exercise independently to benefit the general welfare, such as to assist national needs in agriculture or education, provided that the spending is general in nature and does not favor any specific section of the country over any other. Although the Federalist was not reliably distributed outside of New York, the essays eventually became the dominant reference for interpreting the meaning of the Constitution as they provided the reasoning and justification behind the framers' intent in setting up the federal government. While Hamilton's view prevailed during the administrations of Presidents Washington and Adams, historians argue that his view of the General Welfare Clause was repudiated in the election of 1800, and helped establish the primacy of the Democratic-Republican Party for the subsequent 24 years. This assertion is based on the motivating factor which the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions played upon the electorate. The Kentucky resolutions, authored by Thomas Jefferson, specifically criticized Hamilton's view. Further, Jefferson himself later described the distinction between the parties over this view as almost the only landmark which now divides the Federalists from the Republicans. Associate Justice Joseph Story relied heavily upon the Federalist as a source for his commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. In that work, Story excoriated both the Madisonian view and a previous, strongly nationalistic view of Hamilton's which was rejected at the Philadelphia Convention. Ultimately, Story concluded that Thomas Jefferson's view of the clause as a limitation on the power to tax, given in Jefferson's opinion to Washington on the constitutionality of the National Bank, was the correct reading. However, Story also concluded that Hamilton's view on spending, articulated in his 1791 report on manufactures, is the correct reading of the spending power. Prior to 1936, the United States Supreme Court had imposed a narrow interpretation of the clause, as demonstrated by the holding in Bailey v. Drexel Furniture Company, 1922, in which a tax on child labor was an impermissible attempt to regulate commerce beyond that court's equally narrow interpretation of the Commerce Clause. This narrow view was overturned in 1936 in United States v. Butler. There, the court agreed with Justice Story's construction, 
holding the power to tax and spend is an independent power, that is, the General Welfare Clause gives Congress power it might not derive it anywhere else. However, the court did limit the power to spending for matters affecting only the national welfare. The court wrote, The clause confers a power separate and distinct from those later enumerated, is not restricted in meaning by the grant of them, and Congress consequently has a substantive power to tax and to appropriate, limited only by the requirement that it shall be exercised to provide for the general welfare of the United States, it results that the power of Congress to authorize expenditure of public monies for public purposes is not limited by the direct grants of legislative power found in the Constitution, but the adoption of the broader construction leaves the power to spend subject to limitations, key powers of taxation and appropriation extend only to matters of national, as distinguished from local, welfare. The tax imposed in Butler was nevertheless held unconstitutional as a violation of the Tenth Amendment reservation of power to the states. Shortly after Butler, in Halvering v. Davis, the Supreme Court interpreted the clause even more expansively, disavowing almost entirely any role for judicial review of congressional spending policies, thereby conferring upon Congress a plenary power to impose taxes and to spend money for the general welfare subject almost entirely to Congress's own discretion. In South Dakota v. Dole, 1987, the court held Congress possess power to indirectly influence the states into adopting national standards by withholding, to a limited extent, federal funds where a state did not meet certain conditions required by Congress. Following that ruling, the court later held by a 7-2 vote in National Federation of Independent Business v. Sibelius, 2012, that Congress conditioning a state's receipt of the entirety of its federal Medicaid funds on whether said state elected to expand its Medicaid program in accordance with the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was an unconstitutionally coercive use of Congress's spending power. To date, the Hamiltonian view of the General Welfare Clause predominates in case law. Historically, however, the Anti-Federalists were wary of such an interpretation of this power during the ratification debates in the 1780s. Due to the objections raised by the Anti-Federalists, Madison was prompted to author his contributions to the Federalist Papers, attempting to quell the Anti-Federalists' fears of any such abuse by the proposed national government, and to counter Anti-Federalist arguments against the Constitution. Proponents of the Madisonian view also point to Hamilton's limited participation in the Constitutional Convention, particularly during the time frame in which this clause was crafted, as further evidence of his lack of constructive authority. An additional view of the General Welfare Clause that is not as well known, but just as authoritative as the views of both Madison and Hamilton, can be found in the pre-revolutionary writings of John Dickinson, who was also a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention. In his letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania, 1767, Dickinson wrote of what he understood taxing for the general welfare entailed. The Parliament unquestionably possesses a legal authority to regulate the trade of Great Britain and all her colonies. Such an authority is essential to the relation between a mother country and her colonies, and necessary for the common good of all. He who considers these provinces as states distinct from the British Empire, has very slender notions of justice, or of their interests. We are but parts of a whole, and therefore there must exist a power somewhere, to preside and preserve the connection in due order. This power is lodged in the Parliament, and we are as much dependent on Great Britain, as a perfectly free people can be on another. I have looked over every statute relating to these colonies, from their first settlement to this time, and I find every one of them founded on this principle, till the Stamp Act administration. All before, are calculated to regulate trade, 
and preserve or promote a mutually beneficial intercourse between the several constituent parts of the empire, and though many of them imposed duties on trade, yet those duties were always imposed with design to restrain the commerce of one part, that was injurious to another, and thus to promote the general welfare. The raising of a revenue thereby was never intended. Dash, emphasis in the original the idea Dickinson conveyed above, explains University of Montana law professor Jeffrey T. Renz, is that taxing for the general welfare is but taxation as a means of regulating commerce. Renz expands upon this point. If we excise general welfare from the tax clause, we are presented with a claim that Congress may not levy duties for purposes other than paying the debts and providing for the common defense. Indeed, omitting the general welfare phrase would eliminate nearly all duties for regulatory purposes. A strong argument could be made that while Congress might have the power to regulate foreign and interstate commerce, the omission of general welfare from the tax clause was intended to deny it the power to regulate commerce by means of duties. Comparative view. The narrow construction of the general welfare clause is unusual when compared to similar clauses in most state constitutions and many constitutions of other countries. Virtually every state constitution has a general welfare clause which is interpreted as granting the state an independent power to regulate for the general welfare. An international example is provided with a report from the Supreme Court of Argentina. In Ferrocarril Central Argentino C. Provincia de Santa Fe, the Argentine court held that the general welfare clause of the Argentine constitution offered the federal government a general source of authority for legislation affecting the provinces. The court recognized that the United States utilized the clause only as a source of authority for federal taxation and spending, not for general legislation, but recognized differences in the two constitutions. That argument is contrasted with an argument that the federal constitution was a constitution for limited government that extended to issues about which individual states were incompetent, while state constitutions were free to govern all the remaining issues. The Law School of America the content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America